We're looking at 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. The title of this message is The Centrality of Preaching in the Local Church. Please follow along as I begin reading in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, I'll start in verse 14. You, however, speaking to young Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When we think about this passage and as we look at this section, I want to try and answer the question, why does preaching have such a dominant role in the worship service? There are some who would suggest that the worship service should be more balanced. Some have said, well, we should have you know, equal time for different aspects of worship, uh, 20 minutes for uh, singing, 20 minutes for prayer, and 20 minutes for the sermon. Uh, I would say, I suppose we should at least also then have 20 minutes for the offering as well. Um, but I think uh, the answer to that question, why does preaching have such a dominant role in our worship services is, comes in two parts. The first part says this, God has ordained preaching to have a dominant role in the church by the leaders of the church. God has ordained preaching to have a dominant role in the church. There's a unique qualification for the elder that differs from the other qualifications that you might find for deacon, for example. But the elder must be able to teach, according to 1 Timothy 3. And there's a command in 1, 2 Timothy 4, 2, which says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Paul's saying to young Timothy that a church leader should be ready to preach any time, should be preaching all the time. Romans 10, uh, 14 cries out, how will they hear without a preacher? And so we learn that God has ordained preaching to have a dominant role in the church by the leadership. But the second part of our answer really gets to the heart of the matter because it answers the question why. And that is because God has ordained the word of God to be the primary means to sanctify the church. God has ordained the word of God to be the primary means to sanctify the church. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the, with the word. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified is to be set apart, but not just set apart, set apart for a special service. Uh, sometimes after church on a Sunday, I, I might like to go out to the garage, tinker around a little bit, kind of a Sunday night or Sunday afternoon. That's kind of my Friday afternoon for everybody. So I'm ready. Okay, let's go, you know. And, and, and if I go out in these clothes, my wife says, no, 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 no. Those are your church clothes. Go put on your unsanctified clothes for the garage. And in, in a similar way, the sanctification process changes us 
to be more like Christ sets us apart, not for the filth of the world, but for the work that he has for us to do. It involves cleansing, but it, it involves being set apart. And that sanctification process is obtained through the understanding of the word. It's not just hearing the word preached. It's understanding the word. But otherwise, we could just read the word in Latin and then like some sort of mystic dust falling on your ears, uh, you would somehow grow in sanctification. But it's actually understanding it and its implications so that you apply the word to your life. This passage and the verses surrounding it actually reminds us of much more than the sufficiency of Scripture, but we're going to focus on the sufficiency of Scripture. But before we do that, I'll just mention, I mean, this passage is an amazing passage because it actually talks about the inspiration of Scripture, the canonicity of Scripture, the preservation of Scripture, and the clarity of Scripture. We see the inspiration of Scripture because in verse 16 it says very clearly all Scripture is inspired by God or otherwise God breathed. It's impossible that the Bible could be merely words of men, but rather this is the very word of God. Paul was thankful uh, to the Thessalonians and he expressed that thanks in the 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 when he said, you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as for what it really is, the word of God. So scripture is inspired by God. This is one book, one story, complete from beginning to end, though it was written over a period of 1,500 years, though it was written by human authors, they were all inspired by one divine author. And uh, this is one story, never contradicts itself. The midway point is chapter 3 of Genesis because up until chapter 3 of Genesis, you have a perfect relationship between God and man. But at the fall, when sin enters the world, you have uh, the rest of the book describes who God is and a way of redemption for fallen sinners like you and me. We have... The inspiration of Scripture, we also see the canonicity of Scripture in our text because it actually says in verse 16, all Scripture. And the question comes up, well, how do we know what all Scripture is? How do we know that the Bible is complete, that our canon is complete? We know that our canon is complete because the 39 books of the Old Testament are in the canon of Scripture because Jesus affirmed them as Scripture. When Jesus was on this earth, according to Luke 4, verse 16, As was his custom, he entered the synagogue and he read the scriptures. The the canon was set for the Old Testament, so he recognized, he uh, gave, affirm, he affirmed what was being used as scripture. We know that the 27 books of the New Testament are in the canon because Jesus authorized the apostles to write them. John 14, 23 and following, John 16, 12 and following, Jesus told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would would disclose many more things and guide them. So we see the inspiration of Scripture. We see the canonicity of Scripture. We also see the preservation of Scripture. Take a look at verse 14. Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And verse 15 talks about these things as the sacred writings. These writings are sacred because... God, ever since the word was, st- was first spoken in this world, has remarkably preserved his word. Every jot and tittle 
according to Matthew 5.18. That is to say, God has been so active in preserving his word that not even the tiniest or what may seem to some to be the most insignificant part of God's word, none of it will be removed before it will all be accomplished. Everything in God's word will be fulfilled. In God's wisdom, we do not have the original manuscripts to his word. We could be thankful for that because if someone did have the original manuscripts and we knew that, that they might possibly alter them somehow. And yet, we have so many copies of early manuscripts that through the process of biblical textual criticism, we can determine, we can know exactly what the original manuscript said with certainty. Um, uh, just a, a simple illustration. Um, suppose you had an aunt uh, named Martha who uh, Martha would, uh, had a cake recipe. Everybody loved her cake. She never told anybody the cake recipe, chocolate cake. And one, one day her chocolate cake recipe got burned in a fire. Her house burned down, gone. And so... Uh, uh, you say, well, what happened to the recipe? I don't know, you know, but then they say, well, turns out she told two friends. So you go to those two friends and they had actually told a few friends. So you end up with nine copies of her, of her uh, original manuscript for the cake recipe. And then you bring them all together and you find that they all line up except for one of them down the road says mix and stir and all the other ones said stir and mix. And also you look at it and you see that one of them added an extra ingredient, almonds. Well, it's pretty easy through the process of textual criticism to determine what was the original cake recipe for Martha's cake. Um, it's, it's more complicated and more in-depth and there's a lot more study, but it's just one way to recognize that God has preserved his word in an amazing way. Uh, I was recently, I had the opportunity to uh, be in England and I recently saw uh, some of the earliest manuscripts that we have, uh, Sinaiticus, which dates back to the two and three hundreds. Uh, and, and, and when we found Sinaiticus, it, it took us back uh, a thousand years. Imagine before, I think it was in the 1800s that they found this, these manuscripts uh, that uh, we only had uh, manuscripts dated back to the 1200s. So we went back almost a thousand years with some of these earlier manuscripts and we found uh, amazing uh, consistency and accuracy. So we have the canonicity, we have the inspiration of Scripture, the canonicity of Scripture, the preservation of Scripture. We have the clarity of Scripture. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires." The clarity of Scripture implies that although admittedly in some places the Scripture is more difficult to understand than others, it requires more study and explanation, every passage was written to be understood. God himself said in Isaiah 45 verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. God has spoken openly and plainly through his word. And therefore, as Luther says, 
said it is to be given chief place among everything. God's word must certainly have the first place and the last word in any theological conversation or discussion. And it must have a central place in the church. But as we focus on the sufficiency of Scripture, again, we can go a lot of different ways in this passage, but I I really just want to focus on the sufficiency of Scripture and why preaching is central. Some might ask, well, why is a message like this even necessary? I mean, if God's Word is really the inspired Word of God, and if the canon of God's Word is complete, and if God has preserved every part of His Word throughout the centuries, and if God's Word is not hidden, some kind of secret code, but, but there it is, uh, it's clear, then why wouldn't every believer simply lift up the Word of God, have a high view of it, exposing it to the whole world, and relying upon it for every spiritual need? And I know that in this church, that is exactly what we endeavor to do. But surprisingly, in practice, though every church would probably give assent to a high view of God's word, not every church in practice has a high view of God's word. Um, I've heard it. I've invited people to, to my church before, and I've talked to them afterwards, and they said, yeah, it's what I expected. Well, what did you expect? Well, another sermon from the Bible on the Bible. Amen. <laughs> Wait a minute. What, what's, what's up with the tone there? Well, I'm, you know, it's almost like you have a different trinity than I do. Well, what trinity do you have? Oh, I have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the same trinity I have. Oh, what, what, tr- what trinity do you think I have? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. I've heard that said to me. I don't even know how to process that. I, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has played a role in my life, has sealed me. And I endeavor to be filled with this Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 5.18, which means to be controlled by the Spirit, to do what the Spirit would have me to do. I love the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is vital to my worship. And yet, I don't know how to separate God from his word. I can't imagine the conversation would go well with your wife if you told her, I really love you, it's just I don't want to hear from you. It's you that I love, but your, your words, they have no appeal to me whatsoever. I don't know how to process that. It's hard for me to, to think of a chapter in the Bible that doesn't talk about God's word. The word word is found more than a thousand times in the Bible. That doesn't include synonyms like precepts, statutes, teachings, commandments, testimonies, ordinances, the law, writings, wisdom. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. James 1:22. but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Matthew 7, 24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And what's surprising today is that you have many churches that 
give lip service to the word of God, but in actions they demonstrate a very low view of God's word. They do this in many ways, but let me just mention two of them, still by way of introduction. It'll balance out, don't worry. It's... So as, as we think about a couple of ways where people demean the word of God, is one is they doubt its effectiveness. They doubt its effectiveness. They treat the word of God as though somehow it's not powerful enough to do the work of God to draw men to God. So they take it upon themselves. Now in the 1980s, this was pretty evident. It was pretty obvious. They would, you know, you'd have, it was pretty popular your church if you had a big basement. People say, hey, let's build a bowling alley in our, in our church uh, basement. Uh, Baptists did this. Uh, you know, I said they like bowling. But anyways, it was like, and the idea is uh, we can invite people from the community to uh, go bowling and then we'll use that as a platform to preach the gospel. Uh, or churches would say, hey, let's put on a big Hollywood production uh, in our church and, and have uh, live animals and, 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 and lights and, and all the Hollywood stuff and, and let's, uh, let's, uh, let's do a massive production and we'll invite people from the community to come and see it and then we can give them the gospel. Now, I'm not opposed to uh, a play or bowling you know I'm not the guy who's anti-bowling but I I just think that if you use worldly techniques to try and get people in the church you're going to end up with a worldly church and it shows it demonstrates a low view of God's word as though God's word is not powerful enough to draw people to him it shows a lack of confidence in the word of God we're seeing something similar today, but it's more cleverly disguised, and that is churches are using issues like social justice to try and gain the approval of the community so that they, people from the community might actually come in and, and, and uh, find and hear the gospel and be saved. Um, again, making sure that wrongs are righted is not a bad thing, uh, necessarily, uh, if you're able to do that. But the gospel is the very word of God. The, God's word is powerful enough to draw men to themselves. We don't need anything else. To prop it up, to help it. When um, Another way that people demean the word of God is sometimes they add to it. Not only do, do people demean the word of God by doubting its effectiveness, but sometimes they add to it. And, and the charismatic movement has mastered this, this uh, process and um, this practice. And as that movement has grown and it has become more acceptable even in non-charismatic churches to say things that really we don't mean when we're talking about the word of God. People say things like, well, the Lord told me. Or I had a word from the Lord. Or I have been anointed with some sort of prophetic utterance. Or God has given me a new revelation for you. And, and often when, when you hear these phrases, you, you might ask the question, well, are, are you saying that you have received new divine revelation from God? And they might say, well, yes, in a sense. Well, what do you mean in a sense? I mean, 
Because the book of Revelation kind of warns in chapter 22, verse 19, that you shouldn't add to anything to that book. And so is, is God adding to that by giving you more? Oh, no, no. So are you saying that the word he's given you is just as authoritative and accurate as the word of God? Oh, no, I wouldn't put it on the same level as that. Well, if it is God's word, how can it not be authoritative and how can it not be trustworthy? And how would you explain false prophecy? So I, I just find it completely dissatisfying when somebody claims to have added revelation and I see it as an attack on the complete sufficient word of God. It's clear that some people are only acting as though they are adding to the word of God and trying to make their quote-unquote new revelation appear to be authoritative. And so the sad state of many churches today is they're treating the word of God as though it's not enough or they're adding to the word because they don't believe it's enough. But before we get too upset with others, I just want to pause and remind ourselves it's important for us to hear this because we also are often tempted to downplay the word of God in our own lives. You can say you love the word of God. You can say that you're dependent upon it. You can sing songs like speak, O Lord, as we come to receive the food of your holy word. But if there are days or even weeks where you're not really hungering for the word of God, this is why we too need to be reminded of its sufficiency. We are sinners and we live in a world where everything around us tries just to pull away from the affection we should have for this word and for our Lord. So we need to be reminded of the sufficiency of scripture. And in our passage, 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17, we're gonna look with our remaining time at three reasons why the preaching of the word should be a central part of our worship service. Three reasons why, why the word of God should be lifted so high in our worship. And the first one is that the scriptures are sufficient to save the lost. The scriptures are sufficient to save the lost. Take a look at verse 15. Again, I'll start in verse 14 for the context. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Note in the middle of verse 15, Paul mentions to Timothy the sacred writings and refers to the scriptures, that is God's inspired word. The word of God is the only source of wisdom that we have which can save us from the wrath of God. When we think about that, why would we look to anything else for salvation? When it comes to salvation, I don't need any other tool to teach me about myself because I have the word of God which shows me who I am and who God is. I know that I'm a sinner for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Keep your finger in 2 Timothy 3 and turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you some things just, just by walking through Ephesians a little bit, just highlighting some verses there to demonstrate how the word of God is sufficient to save the lost. In Ephesians 2, we learn that prior to my salvation, 
I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I followed the course of this world, the course which is influenced by Satan and his demons. The course which followed is followed by a world of rebels that love their own sin rather than those who turn in obedience to follow the holy God. And Ephesians 2.3 says, among them, those are the sons of disobedience, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's significant that Paul uses the pronoun we here, because earlier he, he had used uh, other programs like you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's writing to the Ephesians here. Ephesians, Ephesus was a, a, a city that was full of pagan idol worship. Uh, it's under the shadow of the goddess Artemis, whose temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Paul had talked about their paganness and their, their deadness. But then he says, we, and Paul, I mean, Paul grew up worshiping Yahweh, the true God, in, in, in a religious system that, that he thought was doing it the right way. Philippians 3.6, according to the legal righteousness he speaks about, he was considered blameless. And yet in Ephesians 2.3, he says, we li lived in the lusts of our flesh, which is which is quite a statement because Paul's saying there that you might have grown up in a pagan, idolatrous system worshiping a love goddess, Artemis, or you might have grown up in, a in the God's system for righteousness, but if you're loving yourself, it's still lust of the flesh. And you might have grown up in a pagan family that cursed the name of God in your home openly and frequently, or you might have grown up in church and memorized every scripture, but unless you have repented of your sins and turned and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Master, you are still dead in your sins and you're still following the lusts of the flesh. As God declared in the book of Ezekiel, the soul who sins will die. God's word teaches that anyone who sins deserves eternal punishment. But even in Ezekiel 18, there are repeated cries for repentance. In Ezekiel 18, 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, take a look, still in the book of Ephesians there. For by grace have you been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation comes through faith. Not faith in yourself, not believing in your own righteousness, but repenting of your sin and trusting in the righteousness of Christ by faith so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, but rather your sin is taken out of your account and placed on the cross where Christ paid for it in full and Christ's righteousness is taken out of his account and placed into your account so that when God sees you, he sees that you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. It is the gift of God. And those who do not repent, according to Ephesians 2.12, are strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope in this world. The good news brings bad news. The bad news is if you are not with Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in him, you have no hope. You're blinded. You're spiritually dead. 
But for those who repent and trust in the Lord, you do have hope. Take a look at Ephesians 2.17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I want to take you to a passage that I, I just referenced earlier in the message, but turn with me over to Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. I, I want to show you something that I, I love the beauty of this story. The gospel, the word of God is able to save. But we find something in Ephesians 5, 25 and 27 that reveals some of the purposes of Christ's atoning death. Look at Ephesians 5.25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ died for the church. Husbands are to live sacrificially for their wives, sacrificially doing what the Lord would have them to do and thinking of them, their wives before themselves because Christ is our example and Christ sacrificed himself for the church. But verse 26 begins with the words, so that, which is a purpose clause, so that he might sanctify her. So that, why did Christ sacrificially give himself for the church? One of the reasons is to set her apart, to sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, if you think of the first century wedding ceremony, it happened in three different phases. The first phase was actually the arrangement. The fathers would get together and they would agree upon whether the wedding should take place. And once it was agreed upon, it was pretty much a done deal. The next step was the betrothment that would actually gather together the rabbi and the family members and the young couple, and they would stand together and repeat vows. The groom would actually say, you are a wife unto me. And unlike engagement, this was a betrothal. This was legally binding. After the ceremony of the betrothal, they were considered to be married, even though the wedding wouldn't be celebrated for months, maybe even a year to come. There wouldn't be no consummation until after the celebration. And so, but, but, but they would, if, if he were to die during that time, she would be considered a widow. If they wanted to break it off, they would have to get a legal divorce. It was legally binding. They were married married as they were betrothed but the celebration was what everybody looked forward to and the celebration day the 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 bride would begin with what was called a bridal bath and the bridal bath was when the bridesmaids would come and take her to the bathhouse in the town or if they had a bath in their home and they would ceremonially bathe her and then adorn her with perfumes and beautiful clothing and then they would wait, which is good practice for marriage as well. And so they would, they would wait and this is what's happening in Matthew 25 with the 10 virgins who are waiting with their lamps. They would wait for the groom to come with his groomsmen and procure the bride from her father's house and parade her through the town to his father's house where he would present her in all her glory, in all her splendor to his father who had arranged the marriage. Now read this passage again with me beginning in verse 25 
Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You see, the, the most beautiful relationship that we celebrate here on earth is one between a husband and a wife, and yet it's a picture of a greater relationship, and that is between Christ and his church. No wonder Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 that angels long to look in these things, because as far as we know, angels have no way, who are, angels who are fallen have no way of being redeemed, but somehow God has made a way for fallen sinners like you and me to be not only redeemed through the sacrificial death of Christ, but to be sanctified, to be set apart and cleansed and presented as holy and blameless. That is the good news, and the scriptures are able to save you. This is the good news. And the scriptures alone are able to save you. So we lift them high, and we preach them with boldness, unashamedly. The scriptures are sufficient to save the lost. A second reason why preaching should be central is the scriptures are sufficient to mature the believer. Turn back to verse, verses 15 and 16. We'll focus now on verse 16, which says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Four ways listed here as as how the scriptures actually mature the believer, how they help the believer to grow in spirituality. The first one is teaching. The word here is actually a noun. In this context, it does not refer to the practice of teaching. Rather, it refers to biblical instruction. You might even use the word doctrine here. In fact, uh, the word itself is sometimes translated as doctrine, and we find it in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, the same word translated as doctrine. Take a look at down a few verses in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching or sound doctrine. Doctrine is teaching, and sound doctrine only comes from the Word of God. This, this can be a frustration for Bible teachers who secretly desire to have the spotlight shine on themselves rather than on the word. It's, it's not uncommon to find preachers or academic professors to try and be, to see, they, they try to present themselves as innovative, new, finding new perspectives that have never been taught before. Somebody tells you nobody's ever taught this before, buckle up. That's a red flag. This is one of the reasons why, I mean, liberalism can be so fun because you can just make up stuff and, and, and you could be liberal and you could have so much more freedom. But if you want to be conservative, it, you're kind of a stick in the mud. You're just going to say things that have been said for hundreds of years. Unless you remember that the word of God is so deep it can never be plumbed. And so if you, as a pastor, 
Just immerse yourself into the study of the word so that when you're ready to come on Sunday, you are just exploding with what you have learned and understood and applied to your own life. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways, Romans eleven thirty three, Or when Paul cried out in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 9, the unsearchable or boundless riches of Christ. Charles Spurgeon often challenged people about the kind of preaching they sat under. Spurgeon said, may I beg you carefully to judge each and every preacher, not by his gifts, not by his elocutionary powers, not by his status in society, not by the respectability of his congregation, not by the prettiness of his church, but by this. Does he preach the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? If he does, your sitting under his ministry may prove to you the means of beginning faith in you, but if he does not, you cannot expect God's blessing. The scriptures are sufficient to bring you to maturity. You say, but doesn't God use other means to bring us to maturity? Doesn't he use suffering? Doesn't he use fellowship, ordinances? Doesn't he use prayer? Yes, he does use those, but they will only benefit you if they are understood and in line with scripture. A second way that Scripture matures the believer, not only through teaching, but through reproof. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof. The word reproof means rebuke. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, but it was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It carries the idea of bringing to light, exposing, convicting, reprimanding, even discipline. The Scripture confronts you. Luther said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. <clears throat> Hebrews 4.12 declares, the word, of the, God, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This may be one of the reasons why we sometimes avoid reading Scripture. Because if you read Scripture correctly, you will be convicted of issues in your own life that need to change. Like the wife of the African chief who one day left their village, their remote village, and came back with something nobody had ever seen before, he brought back a mirror and he posted it on a tree in the village and everybody was spending hours looking at it. First time they'd really seen a clear image of themselves. But his wife, the chief's wife, hated it. Because for the first time she realized she was not very beautiful. And that there were a lot of imperfections. And there were others who were much more beautiful than her. And so it just grinded at her and she got frustrated. And, and one day she thought of a solution. She ran over to the mirror and she grabbed it and she shattered it. because she didn't like to see what reality was. And sometimes people treat the word of God. I don't want to see the word of God. I don't want to hear the word of God. I don't want to know the word of God. In reality, it's because they love their sins so much they don't want it to be exposed. But those who understand the grace of God, the fact that the grace of God has now appeared to all men, 
and that Christ came to redeem and forgive the broken and the ugly, those who are rebels against our Lord, those whose sins have such a foul stench that there's nothing in you that causes the Lord to say, ah, I really need him. When you recognize that the word of God can help mature you, point out areas which by grace can be improved, you rejoice at rebuking. Proverbs 10, 17, he is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son whom, in whom he delights. Psalm 141, verse 5, let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon my head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. Listen to Psalm 19, verses 8 through 12. Psalm 19, 8 says this, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much, than, fine, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. He's rebuked. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my hidden faults. John Calvin commenting on Psalm 119, 8 through 12 said this, there is not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sin. Woe is me if that be true. If the sin that I see is only just a fraction of the sin that exists and I am to be conformed into the very image of Christ, I need something to show me my sin and I welcome it and I want to be rebuked by those who know the word and love me and by the word itself. I welcome it. Scripture not only teaches and rebukes, but it corrects. Take a look at verse 16 again. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. The word for correction here we, has the word ortho in it. We get the word uh, orthodontist from this same word. An orthodontist makes your teeth straight. An orthopedic surgeon takes crooked bones and makes them straight again. The word of God not only points out areas in your life that are crooked, but it is able to make them straight 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2 says, Therefore put aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. When, when the word of God shines light on your sin, ask yourself, what is it in your life that needs to be changed today? What is going on in your life right now that you know about, that you can recognize? What is the tip of the, the iceberg that you may have been avoiding and not wanting to deal with and not let the, the Lord? Is it, is it some kind of sin that, that is a secret sin? Is it a sin that is something that maybe you've, you know about but you've been ignoring? Is it something that you think you can't overcome? Devour the word of God. Immerse yourself in the word of God. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, sin shall not have dominion over you. And one of the keys to overcoming sin is understanding, first of all, that there is no life-dominating sin that should control the life of a believer. You can be free from it. Now, we will all, always wrestle against sin in this lifetime, but we will not be characterized by sin. And you can be free from that sin today. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul described the church there and that they were like this. And they were such were some of you, but now you have been. And you are different. You're not characterized by those life-dominating sins. Long for the pure milk of the word. We see also that Scripture matures believer not only through teaching and reproof and correction, but take a look at the fourth in verse 16, for training in righteousness. Do you see the progression in this verse? Do you see that teaching gives you the right understanding? Reproof shows you where you need to change. Correction straightens out the crooked areas in your life that need to be changed. But righteousness, training in righteousness, takes you beyond that. Like a coach who's going to train you to be the best athlete or like a tutor who's going to help you excel, the word of God will raise you up in right living. And this often happens slowly. It happens without you really recognizing it. I know that we were on the mission field. We would come back every three years and we'd see my sister and she would see my kids and the first thing she'd say is, wow, I can't believe. She talks like a siren. Wow, I can't believe how much they've grown. And, and I'd, I'd be like, yeah, I mean, you feed them, they grow. I mean, well, you know, but for, for see, 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 for me, it wasn't such a big deal because I'd seen it incrementally and it hasn't really, it's not that significant because I didn't notice it each day and I've been with him every day. But for her, every three years, now she sees them, I can't believe it. And sometimes spiritual growth, we say, oh, am I growing? The regular feeding on God's word brings growth and it may be that you run into someone you haven't seen for a long time and then they say, wow, you're different. You've been training in righteousness, haven't you? The word training here originally meant to bring up a child. It was later used to speak of loving discipline. Notice the focus of the training here into verse 16. In righteousness, that is in right living, that is in the behavior that God desires. You can be confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Scriptures are able to save the lost they're able to mature believers. A third reason why the preaching of the word should be central in worship is scriptures are sufficient to equip the servant. To equip the servant. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You can imagine young Timothy with the, with the, the pressure of taking over a, a ministry for the apostle Paul who was specifically called by Jesus Christ himself to do the work of ministry. Paul, this legend of a guy, and I'm just Timothy. And Paul tells him that you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And for Timothy, his good works included proclaiming the word of God in areas where it is not widespread, which is why 
he receives the exhortation in chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is able to judge the living and the dead and, and by his appearing and his kingdom who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. How? How is young Timothy able to do that? Because if Jesus Christ is the one who is to judge the living and the dead and he will reward those who have been made spiritually alive and condemn those who are spiritually dead and you think of, can he use me? Can he, okay, maybe Timothy. I mean, Timothy, godly guy. He knew the apostle Paul. What about me? Am I really equipped to do the work that Jesus has designed for me long before I came to faith in Christ? The, word, the work that was prepared for me to do? Have you thought about why you're here on this planet right now? If you have been redeemed, if you have been saved, if you are being and have been sanctified, you can be adequately equipped. We, we, we think about our greatest need. Our greatest need is Christ. It's salvation. We need Christ. We need salvation. We need forgiveness more than breath itself. But when you look at our worship, and sometimes people say, well, now the worship's over and now we're going to have the preaching. Preaching is worship because preaching exalts God and his plan to sanctify his church and to purify his church. And I'll point something out to you in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. It says in verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I'm not sure what version you're using, but, but that word equipped for every good work. Actually, uh, th there's a couple problems in this verse. The first one is the word adequate in verse 17 is probably not an adequate word. It's pro there's probably a better word for it. It could be complete, proficient, or capable. Legacy Standard Bible translates it this way, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. But that having been thoroughly equipped or having been equipped is actually uh, a past work that focuses on a present reality. It's in the perfect tense. And the idea here is that, hey, if you really have been brought to maturity by the word, you are equipped to minister the word. This is why we need preaching. We need preaching. We need it to be central. We need it to be dominant in our lives. We need the word of God. Don't let the word of God, don't let the world trick you or entice you or dupe you into thinking that anything else can be a substitute for the word of God because the word of God is sufficient to save the lost. It's sufficient to mature believers and it's sufficient to equip you as servants. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the faith which has once and for all been handed down to the saints. Your truth does not change. Your word is perfect. It's without error. It is inspired. It is complete. It is preserved. It is clear. And therefore, we know that it is sufficient. Forgive us, Father, for times when we've allowed the influence of this world 
to pull us away from what we know will fulfill each and every spiritual need we have. There is not any satisfaction in this world without you. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us up in righteousness through your word. We're thankful. I am thankful, Lord, for the high place your word has in this congregation, and may that never diminish. But may we only grow and hunger in your word even more. We pray for your church, Lord. Use us to minister to those who are in need so that they too may glorify you of your goodness. It's in the glorious name of your son, Christ Jesus, we pray this. Amen.